you to turn to uh, Romans uh, chapter 6 here. We want to look at verses 1 through 5. Uh, Walk in newness of life is what I've titled the message here this morning. And let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. Lord, again, we thank you for your Word. We pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Thank you so much for all that we have in Christ. Uh, We can't begin to even fathom all that means. Uh, In eternity, we will see. And, uh, but, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and pray that you would encourage us in terms of our walk, in terms of uh, the power that we now have through Jesus Christ uh, to walk in newness of life. So uh, minister to our hearts as we study together. pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you'll note on the overhead the outline of the book. Uh, the theme is uh, the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And we have worked our way down to where we're now starting into the section on sanctification. Of the believer in chapter 6 through 8. In uh, Romans 1 through 5, Paul makes three key intersecting points. There's more than this, but these are key. Uh, So note uh, mankind's universal sin problem, and then uh, God's universal provision for our sin problem is found in Jesus. And then justification by faith alone. So it kind of flows here. Uh, The development of Paul's thought builds to what we find in Romans chapter 5. And so note there, Romans chapter 5, and you'll note I'm connecting the thoughts here. Uh, Verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I would connect that down to, uh, if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive, putting the emphasis on receive, how do you do that? By faith. Receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. And then the emphasis on this life. Uh, So that sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. So justified by faith, that's how we receive. And this is what we have is eternal life. Now, uh, Paul proceeds to show the whole story of sin and salvation is really centered in two representative Heads, two headship realities. And the emphasis in both cases is the issue of solidarity. And uh, just in terms of summary, uh, note we have a solidarity in Adam related to sin and death. That's why we all die. We're all connected back to Adam. Uh, We're born into this naturally. We're naturally born sinners. And then uh, there's solidarity in Christ which relates to righteousness and life. And we're born again into this reality supernaturally by faith. This whole reality of solidarity in Christ for the believer is what now builds on, uh, Paul builds on in chapter 6. Solidarity in Adam means that we share in all that Adam is about, including sin, death, and condemnation. Solidarity in Christ means that we as believers now share in all that Christ is about in terms of righteousness and life. All that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. So much so that Paul will go on to say in Romans 8, 17 that we are now joint heirs with Christ. That is complete solidarity. Now it's so important to realize that it is this truth of established solidarity with Christ that Paul now goes on to build on this in chapter 6. Paul in chapter 5 emphasized our position in Christ on the basis of justification by faith, 
And now in chapter 6, he's going to emphasize how we should then live. Our position of solidarity with Christ is permanently fixed. That will never change. And now, he says, you should live accordingly. Now, this is called sanctification. Sanctification builds on justification, which we saw in chapter 5. And so note the development of Paul's thought. Listen carefully here, the connection. The sanctification of Romans 6 is predicated on the solidarity we now have in Christ as seen in Romans 5. And our solidarity with Christ is predicated on justification by faith as seen in Romans 3 and 4. This is so important because many errant teachers want to try and put justification into Romans 6. And that misses the point. Paul has already established the truth that justification is by faith alone in Romans 3 and 4. And building on that has shown that we now have solidarity in Christ in Romans 5. The issue in Romans 6 is that of sanctification, living a set-apart life, not justification, how we are made right with God. Uh, you get these two mixed up and you end up with a work salvation as represented in the false teaching of baptismal regeneration. Now, rightly dividing the word uh, sees the development of Paul's thought in this way. So, so note the flow of thought here. Uh, Romans 3 and 4, justification by faith alone. Tremendous emphasis. And Abraham's the key example. We're saved just like Abraham was on the basis of faith alone. That's what chapter 4 is largely about. And then solidarity with Christ, chapter 5. And now sanctification, chapter 6. At the end of chapter 5, Paul has emphasized that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What we have gained in Christ is more than we ever lost in Adam. Well, Paul can just hear the objection coming as he now continues into chapter 6. Uh, note what he says here. <clears throat> Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, intellectually, one might argue, well, if abounding sin results in even higher heights of grace, well, then why not sin all the more? After all, the more we sin, the more grace abounds. Well, that might be an intellectual argument, but it's not a spiritual one. Paul will show that, spiritually speaking, this argument is totally inconsistent with who we now are in Christ. Paul proceeds to answer this question in verses 2 through 14. Uh, footnote here, this view that says, because of grace, it doesn't matter how we live, it's called antinomianism. And if you read theological books, you'll find this term out there. Uh, also, some forms of easy believism really hold to this as well. It doesn't matter. You believe, and so you're saved. So it doesn't matter. You know, you can live any way you want to live. Well, problems with those views. Uh, let me put up. This is from gotquestions.org. Uh, the word antinomianism comes from two Greek words, anti, meaning against, and namos, meaning law. Antinomianism means against the law. Theologically, antinomianism is the belief that there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey. Uh, antinomianism takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. Antinomianism is contrary to everything the Bible teaches. 
God expects us to live a life of morality, integrity, and love. Jesus Christ freed us from the burdensome commands of the Old Testament law, yes, but that is not a license to sin. And Paul will really explain why as we go on in chapter 6, 7, and 8. So notice his immediate response, though. <clears throat> shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 1. Verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul's response that grace gives a license to sin so that grace may abound is abrupt and emphatic. Certainly not is really an expression of shock. Someone has translated it as, what a ghastly thought. Literally, it says, may it never be. Such a thought is repulsive and outrageous to Paul. It is totally inconsistent with spiritual reality for the true believer. This is now the second time in the letter that this issue has been brought up. So it's kind of a, a back burner issue. It's kind of there, <laughs> you know, being stirred up in the back here. And uh, so this is the second time he addresses this issue. And for the second time, Paul soundly renounces it. Uh, we saw it in chapter 3, verse 8. Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? I mean, if you're preaching grace. Uh, and he says, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So, boy, he doesn't hold back. I mean, you're misrepresenting us in this way. Your condemnation is just. Well, Paul then responds with a rhetorical question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Note Paul is not presenting a command here, but rather giving a statement of established fact. As believers, we have already died to sin. It's not something that will happen, but something that has already happened. In Romans 6, 1 through 11, there are eight references to the believer's death, and in each case, they all speak in terms of completed past action. This is spiritual reality established at the time of saving faith. Prior to salvation, we were dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1. But now as believers, we are dead to sin. This means that sin no longer has any claim on our lives. Paul is trying, and, not trying, Paul is tying back to the believer's solidarity with Christ that he just established in chapter 5. We do not die to sin by our experience. Rather, in salvation, we die to sin in Christ's death, as Paul will go on now to explain. Being dead to sin is a positional truth that is true for all believers. When Jesus died for our sin, he died as our substitute, dying in our place to take our penalty. But he also died as our representative to set us free from the power of sin. So Jesus not only died for us in our place, he also died as us, as our representative. This, again, ties to that whole theme of solidarity building on what we saw in chapter 5. In Adam, our representative head, we all sinned. Likewise, in Christ, our representative head, we as believers died to sin. Now, for those dead to sin, it is totally inconsistent, morally irrational, and biblically impossible 
to live in it as a perpetual way of life. To die to something means it no longer has control over you. Sin in the surrounding context is personified. In Romans 5.21, sin is presented as a reigning king. In chapter 6, verse 6, as a slave owner. When you're dead to someone, they no longer have any say over you. You have separated ways and are cut off from them. You now have a whole different relationship with them than before. I, I read a story, and here's how the story goes. Uh, I, I read of a young man who came to a church. He was a godly young man, a gifted pastor, teacher, and the Lord blessed his ministry in a great way. However, there was an older gentleman in the church who was a leader in the church, and he uh, kind of liked to throw his weight around. Uh, for some reason, he seemed to not like the new pastor, and he made life difficult for him. He had a critical spirit, was always negative, and openly opposed the pastor, so much so that it kind of became obvious to everyone in the church. This went on for several years. One day, a church me uh, member asked the pastor how he managed to put up with this older gentleman who was such an antagonist. The pastor replied, oh, I died to him five years ago. In other words, he did not let this man rule over him. He just went on about the business of serving the Lord. And that is how it is to be with the believer and sin. We no longer need to respond to sin and do its bidding. We are dead to it. It no longer has authority or ruling control. For the believer, sin has been dethroned by Jesus. And because of our union with Jesus, we are now dead to sin. You don't have to sin. You don't have to listen to sin. When you sin, you do so by choice. Not by, well, I'm in bondage to it and it, it rules my life, it reigns. No, it doesn't. There's been a change in, in uh, who's running your life, who's ruling your life now. It's Jesus. We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, something we will talk about, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When we come to a saving faith in Christ, instantly, all the relationships of life immediately change. We now have a different relationship with sin, with the world, with the devil, with God, and with his people. All the relationships of life immediately change. All the old relationships are passed away, and all things have become new. It's a spiritual reality. But what about this reality of being dead to sin? You know, it often doesn't feel like we're dead to sin. I mean, there's an old cartoon in which two couples are talking, and one woman says, well, I, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. <laughs> you know, sometimes we might feel that way. You know, since he's pretty alive to me, I wrestle with it every day, and we do. However, the Bible is very clear that positionally we as believers have died to sin. It's a truth that Paul goes on to say we must reckon or consider to be true. And then we must yield to the truth of it. We must know it, we must consider it true, and we must yield to it. So you need to realize 
who you are in Christ and then live accordingly. Now, there is a view that says being dead to sin means that you are as unresponsive to it as a corpse is to physical stimuli. But you know what? That just doesn't fit reality for anyone. And it doesn't square with Scripture either. Who doesn't feel the pull of sin and temptation? Even in this very same context here in Romans 6, Paul says in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, showing it is a definite possibility. Being dead to sin relates to its authority over us. Our relationship with sin has changed, but its influence is not extinct. We are no longer in bondage to sin, but it is still very much a live reality. We are dead to sin, but sin's not dead to us. We have to be very careful when it comes to analogy. We cannot overpress details. For example, when Christ said, become as little children, in Matthew 18, he wasn't saying become immature, right? Right. Uh, no, rather he was illustrating the importance of humble dependence. So likewise, being dead to sin doesn't mean we will exhibit every single characteristic of a corpse. We must ask ourselves, what is the point of the analogy? In the Bible, the idea of death is not primarily that of cessation, but rather of separation. As believers, we have been separated from the reigning power of sin. Its power over us has been broken and cut off. Because of our relationship with Jesus, our whole relationship with sin is now different. Sin is still very much alive in terms of its presence. But we are dead to it in the sense that it no longer has a claim over us. We don't have to obey it. We now have a new master. But exactly how did we as believers die to sin? Well, Paul answers this question in verse 3. Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul here introduces the key word, no, which is a key word in this chapter. Paul is setting forth the facts that a believer needs to know in terms of holy living, in terms of practical sanctification. You need to know this so you can live accordingly. Romans 1 through 5 deals with answering the question, what must I do to be saved? Romans 6 through 8 follows up by showing, here's how we should then live. Now, there's been much confusion over Romans 6.3 and, frankly, much heresy. Throw the word baptize into any context, and many Christians automatically think it's talking about water baptism. But, frankly, that is not necessarily the case at all. This verse is not talking directly about water baptism at all. J. Vernon McGee says, if you find water in this verse, you've missed the meaning. I think he's right. The words baptize and baptism are actually Greek words. They're not English words. They didn't translate this. They transliterated these words. They didn't translate them. You see, the King James translators, and everybody kind of followed suit after that, but the King James translators worked in a context where they did not want to upset uh, the Church of England, which practiced sprinkling as a mode of baptism. 
So instead of translate, it came with a great idea. Hey, let's just transliterate. Let's not translate it. That'll if, if we actually translate it, it will offend the Church of England. So instead of translating these words, they simply transliterated them. Uh, let me show you what I mean here. You see the Greek baptisma is the, is the noun brought over English baptism. Just transliterated it. Uh, verb baptizo, baptize. But the actual meaning of the word baptize is this, to immerse or to immerse into dye, the idea of identification. You dip a piece of cloth into dye, it's permanently identified with it. So consistently, the word baptize in the New Testament has the basic idea of identification. I had a Bible professor in Bible college who said, Baptism always has at core the idea of identification. For example, John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. Now, the baptism did not bring about repentance, but simply identified the one being baptized as one who was repentant. We might call John the Baptist John the Identifier, right? He's identifying people who are repentant. That's what he did. And he did that in the act of baptism. The word baptized is used lots of different ways. It's used of people being drowned. It's used of ships being sunk. Again, J. Vernon McGee says, actually, baptizo could refer to dyeing your hair. Uh, you know, have, has your hair been baptized? Uh, in, in fact, uh, there was a group, he says, in Asia Minor who dyed their hair purple. We're catching up with them, right? And, and they belong to a baptizo group. In the Bible, there are various kinds of baptisms, some wet, some dry. You say, heresy, pastor. No, Bible, friend. <laughs> uh, dry baptisms, Moses and the cloud. They were baptized into Moses. You know what? Nobody got wet in this baptism. Not a single one. Isn't it a good thing? <laughs> I'd say. Uh, Christ's cup of a baptism to be, he's talking about the cross, Spirit baptism, baptized into Christ, which is what we're talking about here in our context. And then a baptism of fire. Judgment, where fire is going to envelop people. Those are all dry baptisms. The word baptize is used in connection with every one of those dry baptisms. And then there's wet baptisms. Uh, John the Baptist baptism. Jesus' own baptism. Jesus' disciples' baptism uh, during his ministry. And then believers, New Testament water baptism, as instructed by Christ at the end of Matthew and carried out in the book of Acts. Note the language of Romans 6.3. It says, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. Now, this has nothing to do with water, not directly. This has everything to do with spiritual reality related to being identified with Christ. Paul is metaphorically illustrating our spiritual identification with Christ. You could legitimately translate this verse in this way. I mean, if you're translating, not transliterating, but if you're translating, or do you, do you not know that as many of us as were identified or placed into Christ Jesus were identified into his death? There's the idea. This is all about being in union with Christ. 
our solidarity with Christ, which continues the theme begun back in chapter 5. Now the question is this, how do we get into Christ? If this is teaching us about, okay, we've now been placed into Christ, we've now been identified with Christ and his death, how do we get into Christ? Yes, we're now identified with him, we're now placed into him, but how did this come to be? How do we get into union with Christ? If you say water baptism, then you have just contradicted everything Paul has to say in Romans 3, 4, and 5. In setting the table for where we are at in the letter of Romans, Paul has first established at great length that we are justified by faith alone. Water baptism does not make you right with God. It's not the means of reconciliation. Water baptism is an outward work, something that is done. And Paul is emphatic in chapter 4, to him who does not work, but rather believes, his faith is accounted for righteousness, Romans 4, 5. And our faith is in what Jesus has done for us. It's not what we do in obedience for him. Our faith is in Jesus and what he has done for us. In, and this, uh, it's not what we do, including baptism. Paul has dealt with justification by faith at great length in the preceding chapters. Now in chapter 6, he's not dealing with how to have a saving relationship with God. He is now showing the fact, the fact of established union with Christ, our identification with him that was established on the basis of faith. And what that reality now means for Christian living. Again, Paul is not commanding anything at this point. He's telling them to know what's already an established fact, namely their identification, union, solidarity with Christ, which is an established fact the moment we come to saving faith. And in that solidarity, believers are now identified with Christ's death. Just as we were identified with Adam's sin, so now believers are identified with Christ's death, which takes care of the sin problem. Adam's sin was our sin, 512. Christ's death is our death because he died as our representative head. This understanding of Romans 6.3, by the way, is totally consistent with how Paul uses this exact, very same exact language in 1 Corinthians 10.2. Note what uh, we have there, 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Again, the language of baptized here in 1 Corinthians 10.2 has nothing to do with getting wet in water and everything to do with identification with Moses in passing through the Red Sea experience. Again, this is the exact language Paul uses here in Romans 6.3. Only in reference to Christ and his death. We were identified with Christ and his death in saving faith. Now, faith and being placed into union with Christ is a spiritual reality performed by God. Being in Christ happens through faith. 
Note uh, in Philippians, Paul sharing his testimony. He says, and be found in him. In him. In Christ. How does this happen? Well, he says, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then in Galatians, uh, for you are all the sons of God. How does this happen? Through faith in Christ. For as many as you, as you were baptized, identified spiritually into Christ, have put on Christ. Note the connection between faith and baptism here. He's not talking water here. He's talking a spiritual reality. And again here in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, I believe the baptism here in Ephesians 4, 5 is the same reality of spiritual union or identification with Christ that Paul is addressing in Romans 6, 3. You see, all the other unities in this immediate context of Ephesians 4 are spiritual, and they are all absolute. So, summary statement from George Zeller. Uh, George Zeller writes, this, Romans 6.3, is not water baptism. This is not baptism into water, but baptism into Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what it says. Someone has said there is not a drop of water in Romans 6. I think that's true. Uh, this is real baptism. Spiritual. Real baptism. Not ritual baptism. This real baptism takes place the moment a person is saved and is a work that only God can perform. Ritual baptism, that's water baptism, takes place after a person is saved and is meant to be symbolic of real baptism, a picture of what happened to me the moment I was saved. But having said all of this, it is clear that Jesus commanded that we go and make disciples and then baptize them. Clearly, this refers to water baptism because it's what we do. Only God can perform the real spiritual baptism, placing us into Christ, but we perform the outward ritual of water baptism. And this is what they did in the book of Acts. Consistently, without exception, when people got saved in the New Testament church age, they were then immediately baptized. So there's a very close connection between real spiritual baptism and the ritual of water baptism that followed. Water baptism was simply the outward testimony of a spiritual reality. Let me show you. In, in the book of Acts, the context here is Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And notice what he's sharing with them. Acts 10, 43. To him all the prophets witness, he's talking about Jesus, that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So this is a testimony of the whole scriptures. All the Old Testament scriptures, they're, they're showing us this. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive remission of sins. While Peter was speaking these words, what words? Whoever believes in him uh, will receive remission of sins. While he was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And we find in chapter 11, verse 17, that they believed. That's, that's what happened. And the Spirit fell on them. And that's what, when you believe immediately the Holy Spirit comes into a person. That's what happened. And then 
you continue on, Peter says, can anyone forbid water? This is clearly water. That these should not be baptized. Who have received the Holy Spirit just Okay, they have the Holy Spirit. Now they can be baptized. They believed. They received the Holy Spirit. Now they can be baptized. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. Note the order. They heard the word. They believed. They received the Spirit. And then Peter commanded them to be baptized. This is always the order. Believe, saved, then baptized. We see this again, for example, Acts 18.8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. So note spiritual reality. Inward, it's of the heart. Faith, baptized into Christ. Spiritual identification. And then there's the outward physical reality, water baptism. It portrays identification with Christ as a testimony. Now, we're not, uh, we're not saved by the outward testimony. We're saved by the inward spiritual realities, not by the outward testimony. Let me illustrate. Paul used a lot of athletic metaphors in his teaching, so allow me another one, too. Uh, remember, this is just an illustration, and it's not inspired. But if a football team has the ball, and they run the ball in for a touchdown, the instant the ball crosses the goal line, it's a score. The referee then follows up by extending his arms up, straight up, to confirm it's a score. Follow the analogy. The referee putting his arms, arms up did not make the score. It simply confirmed it as a testimony to it. This is what water baptism does. It doesn't change our spiritual state. Rather, it states our change. It merely confirms outwardly an inward spiritual reality. The goal, so to speak, of salvation is crossed in saving faith. At that moment, we are identified as belonging to Christ. At that moment, we are in Christ. At that moment, we are identified with Christ and sharing all that he has done for us as our representative head. The confirmation testimony of water baptism then immediately follows. But merely as a testimony. The confirmation doesn't make it so. It simply is an outward testimony. We're not saved by the testimony, but rather by faith alone in Jesus alone. Uh, again, let me uh, use an illustration here. Uh, you can't see this, but there's a circle there, okay? <laughs> For some reason, I should have made that darker. But you got unsaved people. They're not in Christ. They're not in the circle here. They're not in Christ. But when we come to saving faith, we are baptized, we are placed into Christ. We are immersed, we are placed into, we are identified in Christ. But that happens at the moment of saving faith. The believer has been spiritually immersed, placed into Christ, with the result being that he is now in Christ. This is a spiritual reality for all true believers. In this position, we have absolute solidarity with Christ. 
Christ's death was our death. Christ's burial is our burial. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. We now fully share in all that our head, Jesus Christ, represents us in. When people persecute Christ's people, it's as though they are persecuting him. Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul could have said, well, I'm not, I'm not doing anything against you. Yeah, you are. Even now, we as believers are said to be seated together with Christ in heavenly places. This is a positional reality. It's a spiritual reality. The identification with Christ, this baptism into Christ is deep and thorough. Christ's history has now become my history because I'm in Christ. A footnote here. The essential thing is the spiritual reality of being baptized into Christ, which happens at the moment of saving faith. However, if we have a saving faith, the expectation of the New Testament is that we will then be baptized in water as a testimony to our faith. In the New Testament church age, there are no examples in the Bible of unbaptized believers. It was just expected that if you put your faith in Christ, you will confess your identification with Christ in water baptism. You know, it is a command. It's not like uh, Peter said, you know, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't want to be impolite here. I just want to make a little gentle suggestion. No! He commanded them to be baptized. If a person of age and understanding, and I think that's important, uh, but if a, person, a person, if a person of age and understanding refuses to openly identify with Christ in baptism, then the reality of their faith is very suspect. If you claim Christ is your Lord and you won't even do the very first thing he commands to do, namely get baptized, well, then you've got to ask, is he really your Lord? You can say it all you want. You won't even identify with him openly as he commanded. All the way through the New Testament, we find people believed and then they were immediately baptized. It was a given. If you're serious about your faith in Christ, then you should be baptized. Not to get saved, but as a testimony of obedience that you are now saved. It is the testimony Christ commands for all his people. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then openly show it in baptism. This is your public confession of faith as ordained by God. Verse 4, he continues, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul is continuing to build on the truth of the believer's spiritual solidarity with Christ. Note the language here, with him. This is all about our union, our identity with Christ. Not only do we identify with Christ's death, but also with his burial. His death was our death. His burial is our burial. You know what burial is? It's proof of death. You don't take live people out and bury them, do you? Uh, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> We bury dead people. Uh, it's uh, really, in a sense, uh, conversion is uh, really the attending of the funeral of your old self. You know, there's a real spiritual death and burial involved. 
Burial expresses finality. It expresses with finality the end of the old life governed by relationship with Adam. In this, we enter into Christ's death and burial as we now identify with all that he has done for us as our representative head. A footnote here. The only mode of baptism that properly depicts burial is immersion. I mean, the very word baptized means to dip under, and as such, it properly pictures our identification with Christ in his burial. Well, and then to complete the identification, we also identify with Christ in his resurrection from the dead. We now share in his resurrection life. And by the way, in order to have resurrection life, there must first be death. We as believers enter into both realities. We identify with Christ's death and his resurrection life. We have died to sin. We now share in Christ's life. His death was my death. His life is now my life. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now, some think this is another way of saying by the power of the Father, but the word used is glory. This refers to God's excellencies, including his power. This life is only possible by God's action. The glory of God brings it about. And we now share in this glorious reality. Being born again to new life in Christ is a supernatural thing that only God can do. It is to the glory of God. As the glory of God the Father was on display in raising Christ from the dead, so also God's glory is put on display when we walk in newness of life. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to the glory of God. When Christ lives his life through us, this puts God's glory on display. It's seen in his love working out through us, in living holy lives, the fruit of the Spirit. As those identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we should, as it says here, walk in newness of life. For us as believers, it's a whole new day. We have a, a whole new life, Christ's life, resurrection life. We now share in Christ's life. And we should live accordingly. And we do this by faith. Note Paul's testimony again here. In Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a fact. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The old, the old Paul, I, I'm not living anymore. Christ is now living his life out through me. Which I now live in the flesh. And then he says, how does, how does he live this out? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Walking in newness of life presupposes that one has resurrection life. You know, you can't walk in life if you don't have life. And walking in newness of life indicates a whole changed life. It's a whole new thing. The walk of a new life provides evidence that a person has, truly has resurrection life in Christ. This is a distinctive type of life realized only by one united to Christ. So that Christ is its dynamic. Christ is living his life out through me. His resurrection life is being lived out through me. Stephen Cole says, there is a spiritual fact to believe and act upon. Since we are united with Christ in his glorious resurrection, we should walk in newness of life. As a result of our union with Christ in his resurrection, we are to walk in newness of life. This means 
that our new walk in Christ should be totally distinct from our life before Christ. <gasps> Whoa, change life. David Guzik says, Paul's point is clear. Something dramatic and life-changing happened in the life of the believer. You can't die and rise again without a change in your life. <laughs> How's that for a statement? Yeah! You can't die and rise again without a change in your life. The believer has a real, although spiritual, death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. The picture of Romans 6 is one of solidarity with Christ. It logically follows that if we share in Christ's death and burial, we also share in his resurrection life. William MacDonald has a good statement. Water baptism gives a visual demonstration of baptism into Christ. It pictures the believer being immersed in death's dark waters in the person of the Lord Jesus. And it pictures the new man in Christ rising to walk in newness of life. There is a sense in which a believer attends the funeral of his old self when he is baptized. As he goes under the water, he is saying, all that I was as a sinful son of Adam was put to death at the cross. As he comes up out of the water, he is saying, I no longer, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his, of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 5 is basically a summary statement about the union realities that we now share in Christ. In Christ, death and resurrection go together. This is the full gospel story, and we now are part of the story. As believers, we are now united with Christ in the likeness of his death. And it logically follows that if we share in the likeness of Christ's death, we will also share in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul's point here is they go together. The one logically follows the other just as sure as Christ's death was followed by his resurrection. And the point is, as those in Christ, we share in both of these realities. Whereas previously we had solidarity with Adam in his sin, now that relationship has been broken. And we are now in solidarity with Christ in his death and resurrection. The Greek word translated united together, by the way, is sometimes translated as planted together or grown together. It can be understood in the sense of graft as when uh, one thing is grafted into another, such as a tree limb being grafted in. Uh, it illustrates really a vital joining together. But then note the phrase, in the likeness of his death. This indicates similarity and yet distinction. Alan Johnson says, it signifies neither complete identity, that which is, nor mere similarity, that which is similar to, but a very close likeness, that which is precisely like. A uh, couple uh, quotes here. Uh, note this from uh, Moody Bible Commentary. The likeness of his death indicates that the believer's experience of dying with Christ is not identical to his death, the believer did not die physically upon the cross, but the benefits of Christ's death are experienced when the believer trusts Christ. And then again, John Stott, of course Christ's sin-bearing sacrifice was altogether unique, and we cannot share in its offering, but we can and do share in its benefits by being united to Christ. I think that's what is being said there. 
Because the last part of the verse uh, reads, also shall be, future tense, in the likeness of his resurrection, some commentators think this is a promise of the believer's future bodily resurrection, which certainly other places that is true. However, it is more likely in view of the surrounding context here that Paul is speaking to the certainty of sequence or causal connection. Uh, The word likeness, by the way, is not in the Greek in the last part of the verse related to resurrection, but it properly carries the thought through from the first part of the verse. Well, as believers, uh, we are grafted together in the likeness of his death. And just as sure, we will be grafted together in his resurrection life. The point is, where the one is, the other will follow. There is no partial solidarity with Christ. We share in the full package of his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul is emphasizing truth that relates to Christian living all the way through here. We right now are positionally dead to sin. And right now we share in Christ's resurrection life. These are spiritual realities. And they are life-changing realities. Our whole arrangement with sin has been altered by our faith relationship with Christ. That changed everything. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Impossible, says Paul, because our faith relationship with Christ changed everything. Our union with Christ has forever changed our relationship with sin. Whereas previously sin reigned, we now have a new master who reigns over us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we now share in the power of his resurrection life, which has triumphed over sin and death. To the glory of God, we are now to walk in newness of life. I love this quote from John Newton. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. How true that is. I don't embrace uh, much of Augustine's theology. He was an early church father who lived from A.D. 354 to 430. However, the following story uh, makes the point of our text in Romans 6. Augustine had lived with a prostitute before his conversion. After he was wonderfully saved, he was walking down the street, and this prostitute saw him. She shouted out his name, and he kept walking. He saw her, but he kept his eyes straight forward and walked. She continued crying after him and ran after him. And finally she said, Augustine, it is I. To which he replied, I know, but it is no longer I. Well, can we say with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It all begins with faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your life will forever be changed. Your relationship with Christ changes all the relationships of life. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God, help us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live by faith.
Let's have our closing song. I think you're ready to stand up. Let's do it.